This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, I'm Matt Jolly and this is Politics Without the Boring Bits. Coming up today, it's PMQ's Unpacked. Patrick Maguire, Times columnist, and Caroline Weeder, the Sunday Times political editor, join me to pause the action from the House of Commons to analyse the key exchanges between Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak in real time. Lara Spirit rounds up the best of the rest. And the columnists today, Alice Thompson and Hadley Freeman, on what Kemi Badenoch and Taylor Swift have got in common. And if you like what you hear on the podcast, don't forget you can join me live for Politics Out the Boring Bits on Times Radio, on your DAB radio, your smart speaker, or down. Download the Times Radio app. That's Politics Without the Boring Bits, weekdays from 10. So, it was off to the Parliamentary Book Awards last night, hosted and run by the Booksellers Association and the Publishers Association. Uh, I was hosting it again for the fourth year, I think. We did it the first time during COVID. Did it on the radio. Uh, now doing it in person. It's a lovely evening. It's a lovely evening. Mixing independent bookshop owners who are the loveliest people in the world. Publishers of political books who are the most optimistic people in the world. And MPs who can read. Uh, or at least look at, the nice, uh, look at the nice pictures. Speaking of which, nice pictures in my book, Planes, Trains and Toilet Doors. Uh, which was nominated. We'll come to that in a minute. Uh, previous winners of these prizes include Fuella Benjamin, Penny Mordant and Andrew Mitchell. So if this year's winners play their cards right, this time next year they could be a children's TV presenter, carrying a sword or making David Cameron's tea. Uh, so basically what happens, the publishers uh, enter them in uh, for the awards. They're then shortlisted by the independent bookshops and that it's voted on by MPs and peers. So I wasn't all that hopeful. Uh, apparently, apart from mine, there were other books published in the last 12 months. Although we are still waiting for Boris Johnson's biography of Shakespeare. Still not got that. Tim Shipman's third book on Brexit. Longer gestation period than an elephant, that book. But apparently it is coming. It is coming. And, of course, Liz Truss's much-anticipated book, The Only Conservative in the Room. 
Seems like a pretty brutal uh, review for turnout at a launch of PopCon yesterday. Uh, there was a great shortlist last night celebrating uh, memoirs, autobiography, history and fiction. Sadly, uh, Nadine Doris missed out on being shortlisted, although mainly because they still don't know if the plot is something that she's lost or a highly accurate piece of investigative journalism. We just don't know. Uh, Philippa Gregory was shortlisted for her great book, Normal Women, uh, 900 Years of Making History. I mean, it's a nice idea, that, but uh, I think it's a shame to ignore the good work that men have done over the years, uh, but they're just too shy to blow their own trumpets about it. Speaking of which, Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart were both shortlisted, both absent, though. I, I imagine that's probably the fault of Boris Johnson and Brexit. But seriously, though, uh, apparently they were actually very busy counting all that lovely podcast money. So uh, these, uh, let's do. Let's go on to the public business then, because I know these might be books that you want to read. You know, if you're interested in political books, uh, in for best biography, memoir, or autobiography by a parliamentarian were Hitler, Stalin, Mum and Dad by our very own Daniel Finkstein, One Boy, Two Bills and a Fight by West Streeting, and A Purposeful Life by Dawn Butler, and that was won by Danny Finkelstein. So well done, to Danny. Uh, it's a terrific book. If you haven't, if you haven't read it yet, Hitler, Stalin, Mum and Dad is. An extraordinary read, it, albeit quite a hard read at times, but it's it it an incredible book. So well deserved by Danny. In the category of best fiction or non-fiction by a parliamentarian, shortlisted were Politics on the Edge by Rory Stewart, Code of Conduct by Chris Bryant, and The Winding Stair by Jesse Norman. And that one was won by Jesse Norman, his novel The Winding Stair. He wasn't there, apparently. But I mean, I know he wasn't there. Uh, he sent his apologies. But then, in the best political book by a non-parliamentarian, five in this one, But What Can I Do by Alistair Campbell, Normal Women, 900 Years of Making History by Philippa Gregory, An, 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 an Uneasy Inheritance by Polly Toynbee, Bust by Robert Peston and Kishan Career, and, I don't know if I mentioned this before, Planes, Trains and Toilet Doors, 50 Places That Changed British Politics by Matt Chorley. So it fell to... I wasn't allowed, I, I was, I wasn't allowed to announce the winner of my own category, apparently, because that would have been awkward. So it fell to Dame Margaret Hodge to announce the winner. And the winner is Matt Chorley. Well, it's absolutely extraordinary that I've, um, A, won an election, because I'm the only person on the how to win an election who's never won an election, uh, but more importantly, I've won an election voted for by MPs and peers, which suggests I haven't upset enough of them, or at least I'm more popular than Alistair Campbell. Uh, right, let's dive in then to the uh, drinks reception here in the Houses of Parliament. Let's go and speak to Wes Streeting, who, well, he didn't win. You know, you know, Matt Chorley, the best man won in my category which was Danny Finkelstein's brilliant book Hitler, Stalin, Mum and Dad which as well as being an incredible moving inspiring book also meant as a losing author I couldn't heckle because you can't heckle a book called Hitler, Stalin, Mum and Dad um, but you know in, at least in my category the best book won who won in your category Matt? Very we both Jess Phillips, why are you laughing so hard at that? Uh, I was delighted to see you win, Thank Matt, you. because I felt like you didn't really didn't expect it. I, genuinely didn't expect I, know, I actually did genuinely vote for you, yeah. mainly think, out of loyalty. I'm not saying that now. I did vote for you. If I found out you voted for Alistair Campbell, we'd never speak again. Never. Don't tell him, I actually did vote for your book. I will tell him. <laughs> and I prefer your podcast as well. 
<laughs> Kept that up. Um, are you going to write another one? Um, no, not at this stage in my in my career. Maybe the the sort of the later, you know, the end of at the end of my life. The twilight years. The twilight years. Wait, Street in the Downing Street years. Oh yes. <laughs> no, I don't think one. so. I think I think more like um, how the NHS saved my life and how the NHS nearly broke my life. If I'm, the, if I'm, if I'm the, the long-suffering health secretary I aspire to be. That's oh, so, sorry, Wes, Daniel Finkelstein's here now, and he's... <laughs> sorry, sorry, it's really just for the winners, this. <laughs> Daddy, how pleased are you to win, having been voted for by parliamentarians? Well, the problem, Wes, is being folded into Matt's smugness. It's, like, really <laughs> embarrassing. So I just want all listeners to know that I don't share this, you know, what will definitely one day become schadenfreude. The, the, um, the truth is, I was really thrilled to be nominated with Wes's book because I thought it was brilliant so to hear Wes say those nice things about the book is like a prize in itself really, it's really oh, this is all getting a bit in trouble well done I'd everyone just, I'd just like to point out to listeners as well this was a vote by parliamentarians and only one of us you know me and Danny has actually run an election campaign operation so I think that you know it was clearly a great GOTV operation yeah. well, I'm, well, I'm quite glad the result in this was different to any of the election campaigns <laughs> I ran <laughs> this is a great advert for your how to win an election, win an election. Yeah. he's finally won one <laughs> uh, Jess Wes Danny lovely to see you and there we are that was fun right better get on with it then that's enough enough back slapping The Columnists and it's a Wednesday, so we have got Alice Thompson. Alice Morning, is here. Matt. But Robert Crampton is still on his never-ending holiday. Getting browner and browner, I think. Isn't oh, he? he would be unrecognisable. Won't be needing any of his fake tans, will he? Uh, well, he might come back in any way. He might wear his budgie smugglers, might he? Oh, God. Well, let's, let's, let's take that thought out of our minds. Instead, we are joined by the brilliant Sunday Times columnist, Hadley Freeman. Hadley, how are you? Hi, Matt. Congrats on your win. Very exciting. <laughs> Thank you. I don't want to go on about it. Go on. <laughs> the most astonishing thing is it's only voted for by MPs and peers, which well. suggests I've not upset enough of them. No, I think it's very illustrious <laughs> to have that voting. Do you? Mm. Yeah. yeah, what an electorate to mm. uh, to have won over. And I'm very worried that Nadine Doris didn't get one for her. Well, <laughs> um, I think, yeah, maybe they didn't know what category to put it in. Fiction or non-fiction or fantasy or... I think fantasy is quite a good romance. one. Romance. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Futuristic. <laughs> Children's literature. <laughs> um, anyway, enough of me, Hadley. Let's talk about you. Uh, please, right, you wrote a column at the weekend linking these two. Hello, my name is Kemi Badenock and I am the Member of Parliament for Saffron Walden. I'm Taylor! <laughs> that is excellent. <laughs> Top marks. Who did that? Was that? Producer Ollie, very good. Well done, Ollie. Uh, so, uh, take us through this, Dan. What have Kemi and Taylor got in common, Hadley? Well, I feel like, firstly, this is a classic example of a headline slightly determining people's interpretation of the column because the Kemi reference really was just one paragraph. It is mainly about Taylor Swift. But I do stand by this point, which is I think people expect a woman's uh, personal background, her identity, as we now say, to be more influential on what she's like as an adult, on her beliefs and where she goes in life than they do with men. Men can, men can kind of determine themselves. So with Taylor 
Taylor Swift, my point was the reason that she's the subject of so many uh, MAGA conspiracies now and all these conservative men in America are going on TV shows and talking about how old she is and what a slut she is, is because she comes from this country and Western background and started off singing these very innocent songs about love. And then she really moved away from that quite quickly. As soon as she became successful, she's now much more pop based, a little bit of folk music sometimes. She's had various boyfriends. And now she's going out with a Midwest football player, Travis Kelsey, um, which has kind of confused them even more. So it's that kind of thing of this, it's almost like they see her as their teenage daughter who has betrayed her roots. And the thing with uh, Kemi Badenoch that I think is quite interesting is I have seen a lot of, well, she seems to drive liberal men like in particularly crazy, way more than Sajid Javid ever did, way more even than Rishi Sunak does. Um, about her anti-immigration policies, about her pro-Brexit policies. And one thing that's often brought up is that she is the daughter of immigrants herself. Um, never mind that second generation immigrants often have very conflicting and different views on immigration than perhaps liberals who've lived in this country for four generations assume. Um, it's the fact that she is a black woman who is anti-immigration and quite hard line about certain things that I think some liberals find very confusing. So the point is about how a woman's identity affects how people interpret her beliefs. It was, go on, Alice. I thought it was really interesting, this. And I, it was one of those things I hadn't really thought about, the grief that not just Kemi, but Sona Bravman and Priti mm -hmm. Patel have about their uh, their views on immigration and their, their heritage in a way that is just not, is not thrown around it. I don't know. Uh, um, Rishi Sunak or James Cleverly or, or yeah, I think women get so politics. much more kickback yeah. don't they so yeah. that is the problem in politics and Kemi Badenoch is a very particular example of someone who's incredibly coherent and she's a strong personality and she knows where she's going and that does infuriate probably mostly liberals but mm -hmm. um, it's also the idea that all women have to be utterly brilliant to get to the top whereas men can be totally mediocre <laughs> so that we have this sort of sense that they've all got to sh outshine everyone else if they're a woman and you can't have anyone in the cabinet who's not you know, a star. And that I think I think we do have much higher expectations, whereas I think what's good now is we've got enough women coming through that some of them I think are quite mediocre. I would say Suella Bravman's very mediocre, to be honest. Mm. But I like that. I mean, there's so many mediocre men out there um, <laughs> that I think it's it, it's balancing it up a bit. And and I think with Taylor Swift is the opposite. I think she really is a phenomenon. She's extraordinary. And I would like her to have the Democratic nomination. I would like her to go head to head because I think the only person who can really take on someone like Donald Trump would be Taylor Swift, wouldn't it? I mean, that would be amazing. It would be phenomenal and fantastic. And she has that base, as you know, as Hadley says, she's she's she kind of spans the whole of America. She would be great. And I think to have Travis as the first man would be <laughs> wonderful. I would love it. I would be it would be great. I might even move to America if that happened. Um, well, the big hope is because it's the Super Bowl this Sunday and Travis is playing in it. And the big rumor is, first of all, that Taylor's going to fly back from her tour in Japan to be there. But then also, A, she's going to perform in the Super Bowl, which I think might be a little bit um, optimistic. But B, that he will propose to her at the Super wow. Bowl, at which point I think America will actually explode. Mm. Well, what, what would be good is she performed and then he proposed and then she publicly backed Biden. Join the no, 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 she's got to go for it herself, be... I think, now. I don't think she can <laughs> well, back Biden, Or announces her own run. Yeah. Well, Biden, I think, is just so old. The thing is, she's got youth on her side, hasn't she? I mean, I think we now know with Biden, now that he's mixing up his prime ministers and his presidents and his countries <laughs> oh, quite God, so much, so. I think you, you, you do need to move on. And I think she is an extraordinary star. I think she's, you know, the way that she's taken on the record companies, the way that she takes on the producers, yeah, yeah. everything that Taylor Swift done is it's sort of, 
extraordinary. You can say it's very easy if you're a famous singer, but a lot of those women out there have not. You know, Britney Spears, you look at them, they've been completely crushed yeah, by the yeah, system. Yeah. And, the, and, and actually, the, the point that you make, Hadley, in your piece is that the way she has moved from, she, you know, she didn't really used to talk very much about mm-hmm. politics, coming from this sort of southern country uh, base... Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The bit that I, I hadn't totally clocked before, but the point that you make is that the Dixie Chicks got into so much trouble for being critical of George W. Bush, almost to the point of being cancelled. I hadn't really yep. clocked that Willie Nelson, similar country singer, had done yep. basically exactly the same thing and hadn't made, yep. you know, had sailed through that largely unscathed. Yeah, and no one cares. And he was a big um, public supporter for Beta O'Rourke, for example, who's also from Texas, um, and was very critical of Bush for the anti-gay policies. And no one cared at all. It, it is it is really striking that difference. Yeah, it's um, well, it's a great piece. I I thought I thought the headline uh, <laughs> it, it drew me. Well, I, I would have obviously read it anyway, Hadley, with a ter- even with a terrible headline. On it. Uh, which we sometimes all get on our columns. Um, uh, let's talk about then about Joe Biden, as uh, Alice was just saying, uh, who is gotten a muddle again. Uh, so this time, this was him talking about uh, Emmanuel Macron, but got him confused with Francois Mitterrand, who was the French president who died in 1996. Let's take a listen. When I sat down and I said, America's back. And Mitterrand from Germany, I mean, from France, looked at me and said... Uh, said, you know, why, why, how, how long are you back for? He also got uh, France and Germany mm. muddled up there. And then he also, on a separate occasion, appeared to forget the name Hamas. There is some movement, and I don't want to, I don't want to, I maybe choose my words. There's some movement, there's been a response from the opposition but, um, it, it, yes, I'm sorry, from Hamas. It is painful, it is isn't quite, it? It is quite. And then there was, because the, remember the, the thing when he, he, he kept shouting, is so-and-so here, is she here, is she here? And she died. The woman, no. who was the person? I can't remember who it was. And then he stumbled, didn't he? I mean, the event, problem is, yeah. he just looks like not even a sort of grandparent almost. We're getting on to great-grandparent status, aren't we? I mean, that, that, that sense that he... He can't remember anything yeah. that he's, you know, he's muddled. Every, I mean, the Germany-France is almost as bad as the Mitterrand Macron, isn't it? That, that you know, you can't even get your country right. I mean, I think the thing I'd say about Biden is, I, I, you know, I don't think he wants to run for president. He didn't really want to run for president last time. He did it because he was trying to stop Trump. And the other point is that Trump is at least as rambly and incoherent as Biden at this point. Um, and I feel for Biden. I know, I mean, he is kind of, being pushed as the only Democrat who can stop Trump. And it's a ridiculous situation how, how America's gotten itself into this mess that these two very old men are the only candidates for president. And we can blame Obama for this, for having appointed a quite old man at the time as his vice president. But, you know, it, by the second term of the Obama presidency, everyone really thought it was going to be Hillary for the next term. Mm. So it wasn't such an issue. Um, but I feel like once we get through this election, um, 2028 is going to be an entirely new open field. And hopefully we will have some 40 and 50 somethings running as we used to do. I mean, the amazing thing is Bill Clinton was president 30 years ago and he is still younger than Trump and Biden are now. <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah. 
Well, it's like, I mean, now we do have Rishi Sunak back again, but I mean, we've had some quite elderly ones and then some very young ones. You can never really tell, can you? I mean, do you remember William Hague, we thought, was like, you know, still in shorts, wasn't he? But actually, I mean, how old's John Major? Is he younger than... uh, He's 80. He's 80, yeah. So he's basically... I mean, I suppose it's the same mm. as the, the Bill Clinton thing. Basically, this, I mean, he's a bit older, but basically well, the same John Major, age. David Cameron's come back. I mean, we could have lots of them coming back, couldn't we, if you can carry yeah. on till you're 80? I mean, Biden has been around forever um, and it's taken him this long to get to the White House, poor man. Um, but, I, I mean, I feel for him, I really feel for Jill, his wife. I mean, neither of them, both of them know that this is a bad idea. It's clearly a disaster. Um, and Trump, as I said, is just as bad, Uh sort of mentally and and worse morally um but there's no one else who can run it run in their yeah, stead yeah. I mean, so what can you do now, and then you talked about the power of taylor swift in backing joe biden hadley what do you yeah. think about i think it's basically the equivalent here holly valance backing jacob <laughs> Rees-Nog. uh i don't know if you'll cross this uh i this did see stuff. that yeah. at the pop conference yes uh, um do you think is that is that, is that the british equivalent well, as a long-term Home and Away fan, I'm very excited about the return of Holly Valance to the political stage. I, I could not endorse this more. Well, I, I, do you know what? Actually, I was I was slightly stunned. So Holly Valance was at the PopCon event yesterday, and she spoke to because her husband Nick Candy is a, has been a donor to the toys in the past, but hasn't recently. And she uh, spoke to GB News and backed Jacob Rees-Mogg, saying. Uh, the the speakers were fantastic. I thought Liz was really interesting to listen to. Jacob for Prime Minister, uh, she said. Now, GB News described her as being an actress and a model, completely eliminating <laughs> her extraordinary pop uh, back catalogue, including Kiss Kiss. Absolutely. One of the all-time classics, I would say. I can't, I can't remember any of the others. I, I, I imagine we've not got any Holly Valance in the system, so we can't play any. Um, I want Adele to come up. Actually, I think you know, I think Taylor Swift versus Adele. That's that's the one. You know, that's the only person in this country who would be extraordinary if she suddenly backed someone, wouldn't it? I mean, she is probably our biggest name. Do you to think do that. we got all that out of our system though during Brexit? That all of the celebrities backed. Remain, we don't really like celebrities like doing it. it. Yeah, and the pop tarts. Yeah. I think, and you know, if we had them being sort of pushed by pop tarts. Well, you know, popcorn. I think oh, they're pop tarts, aren't they? Are really they? now, yeah. Well, do you think? They were more popular in the 90s. Yeah, they're kind of, you know, that, that's sort of, they're better as an idea than anything else, aren't they? You put them in the toaster and they're all a bit flaccid and, you know, I think Pop-Tarts is what we need to start I feel like we're them. workshopping my column live on air from Holly... <laughs> Holly right, right there, there, Holly Valance and Pop-Tarts. Pop-Tarts. There's something there. Did you ever like Pop-Tarts? No, I don't think we were allowed them. I might have had them once and I think I was very excited about them. And then I had one and they were... A disappointment. Really disappointing. There you are. Like a Liz Truss speech. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> I think you've got a column there. <laughs> yeah, get that written. David is sort of live fact-checking us as we go. Uh, I think this is aimed at you, Hadley. Holly Valance never appeared in Home in a Way. She was in Neighbours. Oh, God, sorry. There we sorry. are. That's uh, the you... American to make that mistake, sorry. <laughs> uh, uh, he goes on to say, Trump, Bush and Clinton were all born within a few months of each other. Clinton was youngish when he became president. Bush was a fairly unremarkable age. Trump was old, Biden is old. Thank you for that, David. Covering, <laughs> that might be the most Times radio message of the day. Uh, <laughs> uh, but covering both Holly Valance's acting career and the ages of the last four uh, US presidents. Um, Alice, let's turn our attention to your column now. Uh, you've written today about... Uh, this idea of banning smartphones for under 16s. Good so idea. I let my children all have smartphones when they got to about 11 and um, 
they are now, you know, late teenage. So they were sort of okay. They got the beginning of it. But I do now look at it and think that was a mistake and that they're, they it would be like, it's like handing them out alcohol, this idea that we give them phones and that they get used to them and that they need to understand about technology, which is what I thought at the beginning, I think is wrong, actually. I think they're so addictive. I think particularly, say, TikTok with young boys, when the algorithms just keep pushing you further and further towards misogynist content. I think if I was a young parent now, I would try and ban them. And I think it's very hard as a parent individually. So I think schools should actually step forward and I think that you know that they at the moment they're, they're encouraged to but they don't have to and I think that we shouldn't be selling smartphones to children under 16. Well in fact we heard at the weekend because there was another another announcement on banning mobile phones in schools at the toy conference last year and uh, education secretary Gillian Keegan said they were just still getting around to drawing up the guidance and then they'll consult on it. So that, even that feels like uh, it's still some way off. Um, let's bring in uh, the Labour MP, Charlotte Nichols, Labour MP for Warrington North. Because, um, uh, Charlotte, you you also about this. Obviously, this idea of uh, of limiting access to social media was was put forward by uh, the mother of uh, Brianna Jai at the weekend. Um, how, how would you, this work in practice, Charlotte? So I think there's a few different ways of looking at it. There are various technologies that already exist. So it might be the case that... It's about meaning that young people have to have a sort of basic phone, essentially, the sorts of things that you and I probably grew up with. But you can also look at things like operating systems that would limit certain types of content and that would bring the kind of technology that's in school computers that flags keyword searches and things like that, that that would be something that would be available on parents' phones, monitoring what their children are up to on their own devices. Um, uh, Hadley, what do you think about this? I think it's a brilliant idea. Um, my children are still young. They're eight and four, but I've got friends with teenagers and all of them have gone through a thing of their children being bullied at school on social media, you know, through Instagram uh direct messages and whatsapp groups and all that I, I i can i fully back it we just need to see how insane smartphones drive all of us as grown-ups i'm constantly <laughs> picking up my phone i mean the idea of my children having it just seems crazy i i've thought for a while that the best thing to do would be for um everybody to have a dumb phone until they're at least 18 you know the old nokia with mm. no internet and apps on it but the problem is is that the world is now shaped around smartphones like you can't park without a smartphone not i presume that many <laughs> teenagers are <laughs> Um, no, but also but... you can't you can't go to school. My uh, daughter's school, the, her whole uh, we talked about this the other day. Her whole life, her school life, her planner, her homework, her yeah. Um, yeah. attendance, yeah. achievement points you know, is all done through an app on so a phone. So that is the problem. So also, they quite often, mm. they end up doing their homework on the phone because they're told to do research. Mm. And they all the research shows that actually, if you're on your phone doing your homework, you spend 37% of your time on social media yeah, yeah. looking up messages. And I think that's the problem. You get 257 alerts on average a day if you're a teenager. I mean, that's why I'm not sure I think that schools should be putting everything onto the phone. That I think actually they should be talking and discussing with them. They should be writing. We know that handwriting is really important still. They should put everything in old-fashioned diaries, probably. And then, uh, Charlotte, You've got a debate in Parliament today on mindfulness in schools. What what do you want to see happen there? So since Esther's daughter Brianna's murder, she's fundraised over £50,000 working with the Warrington Guardian to bring the Mindfulness into Schools project into schools in Warrington. And our ask today from the government is that this is something that they make national policy. Um, and how, how what, explain to people who don't know, what, what would lessons in mindfulness in schools look like? What, what does that actually involve? So this is something that is already policy in Wales. The government there 
uh, introduced mindfulness into the curriculum as part of the curriculum in well-being there in 2022 and in the schools in Warrington we're already seeing some real benefits now it doesn't need to be discrete lessons necessarily although at some of the schools for example it will be five or ten minutes in the morning to get children ready and focused for their learning that day but it's about embedding it into the wider culture of the school so helping young people to understand their feelings before acting on them and making sure that we're building that mental resilience for young people at a time of a mental health crisis that the NHS is ill-equipped to deal with. Do you want to about this, Alice? Do you think this is a good idea? Well, my only problem with mindfulness, I think, is that, that it is quite difficult to settle the class and get them to do something like that. But I do like it. I also like the idea of doing more exercise in schools, though, too. I think that actually getting children running around and doing stuff and... And I think that anything that helps with mental health with young children, because it's so difficult to access any specialist care, is good in schools. So, yeah, I do agree. I just think we have to be careful how you do the mindfulness and it doesn't just become 10 minutes of children sort of twitching away and and um, kind of throwing things at each other, which it, which it can be. I know with my children, whenever I tried mindfulness, that they uh, tended to get more restless rather than more relaxed. I tried it. I don't know if you've ever done this, Hadley. I tried a, the, one of the mindfulness apps and it drove me mad. Yeah, I, I have to say I'm not great at it. But, you know, my <laughs> children, um, so I've got eight-year-old twins um, and the little four-year-old, they like doing kids' yoga, which I kind of think is combines what Alice was saying, which is exercise, as well as the idea of relaxing. Probably with mindfulness, it's, it's a very vague term. Um, I personally think that in terms of children's mental health, one of the best things would be getting rid of the smartphones and getting rid of them being on the internet all yeah. day long. Well, that was a problem. It turned out that I was trying to do mindfulness using an app on my phone. Yes, quite. Uh, <laughs> it all joins up. It all joins up in the end. Uh, Hadley, really good to see you. Hadley Freeman there, Alice Thompson, and uh, thank you, uh, Labour MP Charlotte Nichols as well. has got that debate in, uh, in Parliament later on today. Hadley Freeman from the Sunday Times, Alice Thompson from the Times, and of course you can read them every week. Just get yourself a subscription at thetimes.co.uk. Up next is PMQ's Unpacked. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. PMQ's Unpacked on Times Radio. Unpacking the politics and cutting through the crossfire. Order, order. I call Matt Chorley and... Patrick Maguire and Caroline Wheeler. 
Hello to you both. Good afternoon. Uh, Patrick, you're, you're a semi-regular at this. Sem Thanks very much. Yeah. I don't know, your name's dropped off the jingle. There is a jingle with your name. There is a sure jingle with my name on it, yeah. What's happened there? Oh, yeah. And Caroline Whaley, your debut on PMQ's Indeed. Unpacked. Yeah. Where, where would you normally be at this time on a Wednesday? Would you normally be in the press gallery? No, not normally, actually. I religiously used to go to Prime Minister's yeah. Questions, but having done it for pretty much 20 years, yeah. I, it kind of has lost its allure a little bit because it, it very rarely <laughs> continues news into the Sunday. So, uh... Try and pick your dick up. It's going to be gripping. It's gripping radio. Right? Carol and I first worked together in the regional lobby when we, we did. did have to go and watch every, every, every week. week. Yeah. Now look at us. Yeah, exactly. Preferring to have lunch, but being here is a complete and utter honour and huge privilege. Uh, what do you think uh, Keir Starmer will go on today? I think he'll talk about the bet. I mean, that seems to really, really kind of um, uh, got people talking about kind of how, you know, out of touch the Prime Minister is, which is a, a subject that he's gone on about numerous times at yeah. PMQs before. It seems to work well for him talking about him being the kind of billionaire Prime Minister. So I think at some point we'll see a reference to that. And the Labour Party have been pomping out ads, uh, Patrick, of, of Rishi Sunak taking Piers Morgan's £1,000 bet. Yeah, they have. And that is the worst part. It's almost the worst possible person the, for Richie Sunak to have taken a bet with, right? Everybody knows who Piers Morgan is and it reinforces one of the things both parties do in their focus groups all the time which is that the Prime Minister is considered to be rich and out of touch. And anyone, in fact, because it obviously happened, we did our latest focus group on Friday nights, so we didn't catch it but I imagine if we did it again they would all notice. They'd all be saying, I don't have a £1,000 to go around doing well, daft bets with Piers Morgan. As you, well, exactly and also, as you said in the latest Townsville election podcast, ding, 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 uh, they, uh, sorry, you, you control the bell, not me. Uh, they, it's one of those things that people will notice. It's a political story that has cut through precisely because that image of him shaking hands with Piers Morgan is incredibly striking. And, of course, it's about Rwanda. Yeah, indeed. It's a perfect storm. It's a perfect storm of all the things. Well, here we go, then. We can go live to the House of Commons. I suspect we'll also, I imagine everyone who speaks will have to say nice things about the King as well. Uh, that will just that just goes without saying. Everyone will say exactly the same things, uh, but we'll still have to sit through that. Uh, let's go live to the House of Commons then. Question number one from Keir Starmer. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I join with the Prime Minister in sending His Majesty the King our very best wishes for his treatment across this House. We all look forward to seeing him back to full health as quickly as possible. Mr Speaker, this week the unwavering bravery of Brianna Jay's mother, Esther, has touched us all. As a father, I can't even imagine the pain that she's going through, and I'm glad that she's with us in the gallery here today. Yeah. Mr Speaker, a year ago, the Prime Minister promised to bring NHS waiting lists down. Isn't he glad he didn't bet a grand on it? <laughs> Good, well done, Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker, at least I stand by my commitments. Yeah. It, it, he, he, he's, he's so indecisive, the only bet he'd make is an each-way bet. Yeah. Oh, dear. Apparently the Prime Minister's not a gambling man yet. He's incredibly au fait with <laughs> the specifics awesome. of what you can get in the bookies. And, of course, he told Test Match Special last year he loves gambling. Yeah. Um, well, you were right, the NHS waiting list and the bet were going to come up. Uh, did start, I mean, the, whatever workshopping they've done in number 10, 
about him and an each way bet. Does that work, Caroline? I'm not sure it does. I mean, he's obviously... The thing he said there about, you know, at least I stand by my commitment, there's obviously a dig about the fact that the Labour Party has spent the last six months rowing back from their decision to spend £28 billion on uh, sort of green energy investment. Um, so that's kind of a bit of a jibe there, but I'm not sure it works. I'm not sure that it, it particularly cuts through. I think the, the overriding thing people are going to come away from is that we've got a Prime Minister that's bet uh, another wealthy individual a lot of money. And also, there's no point in saying I stick to my pledges if you don't deliver on any of them. Just and, saying, and Rwanda being one uh, of them. Rwanda's one, yeah. NHS waiting list another yeah. one, growing the economy is another one, exactly. bringing down debt is another one. It's well, I've, I've, I haven't dropped my promises, <laughs> I just haven't met them. Yeah, it's striking that he could have used that opportunity to much more aggressively restate his commitment to planes taking off within the year, which he, he, he didn't really do. There's also a weird thing, and I imagine we might hear something about this, the Treasury... Or have released something called opposition policy costings. Um, uh, the Tory party are tweeting about it, breaking officials reveal that a key plank of Labour's policy costs double what they claim. Seems slightly weird. Uh, Interesting um, use of civil service resources, resources yeah. Labour will inevitably say. This page shows the government's costing of opposition policies. Uh, yeah, looking at the National Warm Homes Plan. So there we are. They've uh, got a lot more time on their hands than most of us, I think. <laughs> Clearly. Well, the, the government isn't doing anything, so they've got, no. yeah, they, might well, they might as well get on with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get ahead for the autumn. Uh, right, let's go back to the House of Commons then. Now we've got the lame betting jokes out of the way. Where does it go next? Uh, we are live on the YouTube channel. Sorry, I've been told off because we haven't said hello to the people who are on the YouTube channel. Uh, Candy is in upstate New York. Stephen is in Sleaford. Lou is in Pennsylvania. Uh, Tom is checking in from the soggy Solent. Ross is in Guildford's. Uh, Martin Northolt. Uh, Nick says, has Patrick brushed his hair? No. <laughs> what has Patrick brushed his hair with, we are wondering? I, d I don't know. Well, nothing. Nothing, apparently. Uh, just, greetings from Marlborough. I just passed John. it when I get out of the show. Oh, God, it does look awful. Uh, Dave is in Glasgow. Were you on the radio? Uh, Heather says, am I the only person who doesn't have a copy of Matt's book? I hope not, Heather. Well, as you're online, open another window while you're watching along on the YouTube channel. You can order one as we go to question number two from Keir Starmer. Well, Mr Speaker, he says he's, he stands by his commitments. He once insisted, insisted, that if he missed his promises, these are the words he used, I'm the Prime Minister, and then he said, it's on me personally. Today we learn from his own officials that he's the blocker to any deal to end the doctor's strikes. And he's always, every time he's asked, he blames everyone else. So what exactly did he mean when he said, it's on him personally, if he doesn't meet his promise. Prime Minister. M Mr Speaker, well, we are bringing the waiting list down for the longest waiters and making progress, but it's a bit rich, Mr Speaker, to hear about promises from someone who's broken every single promise he was elected on. I mean, I think I counted almost 30 in the last year. Pensions, planning, peerages, public sector pay, tuition fees, childcare, second referendums, defining a woman. Although, although, in fairness, that was only 99% of a U-turn. The, the list goes on, but the theme is the same, Mr Speaker. It's empty words, broken promises and absolutely no plan. <sighs> I, might have broken, I might not have met my promises, but you've broken yours. Before you've had the opportunity to yeah. keep them. I mean, it's clear what Keir Starmer's trying to do now. I think he's going to, you know, you get six questions... I think he's going to ask about all five of the pledges the Prime yeah. Minister made last year and then use the six to, you know, wrap up and, wrap it all up and tell, a few, well, tell a few classic Keir Starmer gags. Um, that list of things from Rishi Sunak there, there were, 
yes, the 28 billion, etc., other policies there that Labour have you turned on and yeah. watered down pledges on, but some of them just seem to be probably made up. Well, he does have a bit of form for that, doesn't he? Oh. I mean, you know, ditching of certain meat taxes and things like that that have happened yeah, in the yeah, past. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. You know. I thought he was going to actually do quite a good joke of just do it, and that's just the peas, or your, uh, that's just taking the peas or something. Because yeah. they will be out with you know, pensions and blah, blah, blah. And then you just sort of drifted off into other things. Uh, Patrick, or either of you, can you explain the 99% joke? Was well, it an interview with you, It was Caroline, an interview with it? me. It was, yes, yes. And uh, it was when he was sort of softening his position about, you know, whether or not you could uh, be a woman and have a penis. And he basically told me that um, 99% of women didn't have a penis and that somehow made it all right. Um, which I think actually ended up getting him to more trouble mm. um, than his previous position had been. Um, and he's obviously subsequently U-turned on that position yeah. as well. <laughs> so, um, you know, on that one, yes, I think Rishi's got a point, to be honest. Well, he could have put penis in the, um, in the list of peas. Peas, exactly. Yeah. Exactly, you missed a trick there. Yeah, pensions, penises. <laughs> We've got them all covered here on Times Radio. Let's go back to the covers. Question number three from Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer! <laughs> of, all, of all the work, of all the weeks to say that, when Brianna's mother is in this chamber, shame parading as a man of integrity when he's got absolutely no responsibility. Absolute. Of all... But either side... I, I think the member's getting carried away. Can I just say that our constituents want to hear the questions and they certainly want to hear the answers. They don't want to hear organised barracking. So please, I want no more. Kiss Hammer. I think the role of the Prime Minister is to ensure that every single citizen in this country feels safe and respected. It's a shame the Prime Minister doesn't share that. I welcome the fact that he's finally admitted that he's failed on waiting lists in the NHS. I also welcome that he's finally acknowledged the crisis in NHS dentistry. He's calling it a recovery plan after 14 years of Tory government. What exactly does he think the NHS dentistry is recovering from? As, as ever, Mr Speaker, he, he seems to convene... Certainly not having enough of the front bench either. Please, I want to hear it. That's Lindsay Hall telling the election the fever, side. I'm hoping, is not coming tomorrow, so let's not behave as though it is, Prime Minister. Well, Mr Speaker, as ever, he conveniently forgets the impact of a pandemic on NHS dentistry, and it was specifically because of the close proximity nature of dental provision that it was unable to operate as normal throughout the pandemic. That was the recommendation of the medical and clinical experts, Mr Speaker, which is why inevitably there is a backlog in dental care and the impact that it has. But that's why, as the Honourable, my Honourable Friend, the Health Secretary, will outline later today for the House, we're putting more funding in to provide more NHS provision across the country, on top of plans that will see the number of dental training places increase by 40%, Mr Speaker. But I would actually just point out, our plans mean that there will be 2.5 million more NHS appointments, which is in fact three times more than the Labour Party are proposing. Right, so Keir Starmer clearly uh, very cross about uh, Rishi Sunak making the uh, the joke about what a woman is, given that Brianna Jai's uh, family are in the 
uh, gallery, in the press gallery, in the uh, the public gallery, in, in the Commons, which uh, Keir Starmer's talking about, will that become a problem, do you think, Caroline? It looked to me, and it's difficult not yeah. being there because you can't quite read the mm. river, it looked to me a little bit confected um, because I don't think that, you know, drawing that kind of attention mm. to that particular case is actually a great thing for Labour to have done either. Well, yeah, they could be accused of playing politics exactly. with that. I guess it depends if Esther, if Esther Guy comes out afterwards and said, you know, tax the Prime Minister for that. Clearly it's a different sort of thing, but it will probably depend on her reaction and if she says anything about what the Prime Minister says. It's, it, but it's very bold of Keir Starmer. You know, the Keir Starmer two or three years ago probably yeah. wouldn't have... Called it out. Called it out mm. or thought on his feet or been... You yeah, know, and then used it to attack his integrity. Well, completely, yeah, yeah. completely. I suppose that actually it depends, you know, in what... we don't. I don't actually know in what basis she... Uh, uh, Esther, Jar, Esther is in the, the mm. gallery... Is she there as a guest of Keir Starmer? Is she? I don't know. If she's aligned herself. It sounded herself to, like it, didn't yeah, it? Yeah. because he drew attention to yeah. it rather than the prime which minister. Which I'm not actually so. supposed to do is draw attention to people who are in the gallery. That's mm. the other thing, which is a sort of um, uh, slightly separate point. But yes, it depends. Uh, Rishi Sunak just laid out his his entirely pre-planned jokes and probably hadn't thought it through. But yeah, Keir Starmer clearly very riled by it. Uh, but let's see. So what we've done now? So we've done uh, we've done inflation. We've done NHS. Uh, where, where do you think we're going now, Patrick? It's a very good question. Uh, <laughs> Thanks very much. The, pro- the pro- economic growth, maybe? Yeah, let's find out. Question number four, Keir Starmer. Mr Speaker, there are some areas in the country where you literally can't have an NHS dentist. And he says <laughs> that's not. down to COVID. <laughs> People are literally pulling out oh, oh, their own oh, teeth. Oh. Sorry. Lindsay Can I just again. say, now I don't need any more off this front bench either. Do we understand each other? Carry on. I love questions to the speaker. People are literally pulling their teeth out using pliers. It's an experience that can be compared with extracting an answer from the Prime Minister at this dispatch box. The truth is, after 14 years of neglect, this recovery plan is just a desperate attempt to try to recover back to square one. If he wanted to move forward, he should follow Labour, scrap the non-DOM tax status, use the money to fund two million more hospital appointments every year. But, Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister is oddly reluctant to follow us on this. What exactly is so special about this tax avoidance scheme that the Prime Minister prioritises it above the NHS? Mr Speaker, let's look at that record. We've in the NHS record funding, record doctors and nurses, record number of appointments, higher cancer survival rates. But what's happening under Labour's watch in Wales, Mr Speaker? Let's have a look. A fifth fifth of people in Wales are currently on a waiting list. Waits of 18 months or more are ten times higher than that in England, and people are waiting twice as long for an operation. Their failure has sent the Welsh NHS back to square one, and we'll never let them do that here. Right, I mean, it's quite a lot to uh, unravel through there. Is that now more interventions from Lindsay Hoyle than, than, than the, questions the, from yeah. the leader of the opposition? I think, I think it probably is. A notoriously publicity shy. Um, is it a mistake for Keir Starmer to keep talking about the government's recovery plan, uh, highlighting that there is a plan? Well, as long as it's not working, yeah, I suppose so. Then it's a quite effective attack, isn't it? You know, because you know, in the same way that Gordon Brown could talk relentlessly about. Uh, you know, saving the economy or saving the world or saving the banks, uh, as he put it in the space of a single sentence. And you won't be rewarded for it because 
people didn't feel that yeah. the economy had recovered in and the same way that the NHS And that's the mantra is. that Labour are kind of adopting now at the moment, is that it's this kind of, do you feel better off now than you did five years ago? Or, mm. you know, it's the, the Reagan mantra from 82. And I think they're going to keep returning to that. They want people to kind of look at it and think, we've had all these years of Conservative government and actually you haven't got a functioning NHS, you can't get a dentist, you can't get a GP appointment, you're paying more for your mortgages... You know, everything that the Tories have said that they're going to do, they haven't delivered on. And just the very language of using a recovery plan suggests that there's something has collapsed, you know. Yeah. And and so I think that is quite an effective argument for them. But it's being slightly lost here because of the kind of knockabout. And I think, you know, Rishi bringing Wales into play is quite an yeah. interesting thing to do because... You know, Those figures are bad. In they Wales. are bad. They are bad. But but again, if you compare that to what's going on in the NHS in England and the fact that he's just broken his own promise on it, it doesn't mean that he comes out of it kind of smelling uh, of roses either. No, it's interesting that. And I suppose the the um, the attack from Keir Starmer uh, that he's tried to mount in previous weeks is to combine the out of touch thing, the wealth thing, with you know, and which. People already talked about with a sort of out of touch with reality. The sort of he's laughing and everything, you know, he's saying everything's okay. They haven't quite managed, it feels like they haven't quite got to the phrase yet to combine those. He's rich and out of touch, but he also he's he's delusional about the state of the NHS or the state of schools, and they haven't quite found the phrase that ties that together. It feels, Patrick. No, as you say, it needs that sort of. It's sort of Blair uh, used to say, you know, the moment he knew the leaders of the opposition opposite him were doomed was when he could come up with a pithy phrase that summed up the weakness of their approach. For instance, about our Times colleague William Hague, he said, so he's good at jokes, but useless at everything else. And, it, you know, you don't feel Labour have quite nailed their attack on the Prime Minister. Not that it's, that's a, you know, election uh, losing issue at all, but... You know, in terms of narrative, in a week yeah. where Labour have struggled to nail their narrative on their own policies, you, it's something that they could definitely improve on. Harry's been in touch, says, I'm so confused as to what square one actually is. Where is it? What is it? When did it begin? The problem is people would quite like to go back to square one if square one is, you know, before the past 13 years and their diagnosis is, well, it's time for a change. Yeah, and yeah. as Caroline says, they don't feel better off than they did 13 yeah. years if we, ago. If, if you know, there's a certain type of person who's going to vote Labour, who would think not having the pandemic, not having Brexit, not having austerity. I mean, there's no, you know, obviously that parallel universe doesn't exist, but it's probably not the, the terrible situation that uh, uh, that maybe Rishi Sunak has tried to paint. Right, let's go back to the House of Commons now. We have got question number five from Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer. Mr Speaker, when he admitted that he'd failed on waiting lists, I actually thought that we might be entering a new era of integrity, professionalism and accountability. Remember that one? But just like all the other relaunches, it's proved to be a false dawn, still blaming everyone else, still removed from reality. It's very simple. You can either back more NHS appointments or more tax avoidance. We know what side we're on. Why doesn't he? Mr Speaker, the best way to ensure that we continue to fund the NHS, as we have, is not to make £28 billion of unfunded spending commitments. But ju- and just this morning, independent Treasury officials have published a formal costing of just one part of their eco-promise, their insulation scheme, and it turns out that it will cost double what they had previously claimed. Not the £6 billion that Labour accounted for, but £13 billion every single year. It's now crystal clear they have absolutely no plan, but we all know how they're going to fund that gap. More taxes on hard-working people. 
So there we are. That's the um, the document that I spotted just before PMQ started. So this is the uh, ministers have asked the Treasury to cost the National Warm Homes Plan. And they say this page shows the government's costing of opposition policies. Successive administrations have accepted that since departments provide factual answers to MPs and peers about the cost of identifiable changes in activities or benefits. There's no objection to officials providing ministers with similarly factual information about clearly identified opposition policies. Is this actually a row that the government want to have, the Tories want to have, Caroline, because then everyone will be talking about Labour's figures. And even if it's a row about whether or not they should be getting the Treasury to do it, it just makes a story about Labour's twenty eight billion again. Yeah, because they want to pers- they want to persuade us all that you know Labour thinks it's got a magic money tree, and that we're back to the kind of arguments that we had uh, when Jeremy Corbyn was the leader of the opposition. So you know they are very focused on trying to kind of suggest that they've got uncosted, uh, unfunded plans all the time. I mean, what's quite interesting about this is really. Uh, where Keir Starmer comes about it and where his whole thrust of questioning has come from is that he's furious about the fact that the government keep promising things and then not delivering on it because he actually thinks that that is what's undermining trust in Mm. our politics. Uh, But actually, sadly, what's happened is because of what's happened with £28 that's now opened Labour up to the same accusations and criticisms. When actually, when you talk to people in the Labour Party, what they're actually saying is one of the reasons why they're kind of rowing back from this is because they don't want to make a commitment to something that they then can't deliver Mm. and fall into the same trap that the Tories have done. But you're absolutely right. It feels like we're in kind of Groundhog Day where we were with Brexit some time ago with, you know, the Treasury being dragged in to cost what Brexit was going to cost us and sending out leaflets to homes and sort of, uh, you know, raising sort of spurious figures about all of this. And and that may end up being the kind of sideshow that we get after this, actually. Interesting point uh, someone's just made on the uh, YouTube channel watching along with us. uh, Rishi Sunak is trying to argue simultaneously, uh, you have no plan and your plan is going to cost billions more. So again, you know, we were talking about Labour yeah. haven't really let, nailed their attack on the toys. The toys can't quite work out, is Keir Starmer a man with no plan? Or is he a dangerous, overspending socialist who's going to ru- ruin Britain? Well, it's a cake-and-eat-it thing, isn't it? It's very cakeist. Boris Johnson would very much admire this line of attack, and the £28 billion is an interesting case in point. And that question, by the way, and those Treasury figures are clearly designed to punch that bruise just as the Labour Party wrings its hands and decides when exactly to announce that number is going. And that's being played out very publicly uh, at the moment. You know, if if Labour do drop the £28 billion, Rishi Sunak will say, you don't have a plan, you U-turn, you've got no principles. If in the very unlikely event that it stays in any form, Rishi Sunak will say, you're a crypto Corbynite who's going to bankrupt the country. So Rishi Sunak is basically trying to have it always on his attacks on Keir Starmer. And the fact he's done both within the space of 15 minutes uh, is a salutary reminder of that. But to be fair to him, it's actually been quite effective, hasn't Mm. it? I mean, this is what's pushed Labour into this position because actually uh, there's no world what it ends up in a good good scenario for them. Either they stick to it, can't deliver on it, uh, or they ditch it and they get accused of basically doing a massive U-turn. So... And actually, it is a reminder that, yes, Labour are 20 points ahead in the polls, but they're not, you know, they're not invincible. And the Tories have managed to get Labour into a pickle. Yeah, absolutely. Of their their own making. I'm fascinated by this document they've released. It includes the phrase, assumptions from special advisors. (laughs) So they've they've basically, they've read an interview that uh, Keir Starmer's done with the Mirror, and then they've come up with their own assumptions of what that means, and then they've come up with a big figure for what it costs. 
Incredible. Sounds very scientific. Yeah, so absolutely, absolutely bang to rights. Uh, but let's go back to uh, the House of Commons now. Uh, does, as we always, we live in hope that it might happen. Uh, can Keir Starmer uh, tie it all up and put a bow on it? Uh, this is the last question from Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer. Mr Speaker, this is Mr 25 tax rises. He, he's literally the country's expert on putting taxes up and he thinks he can lecture everyone else on the economy. Last week, he and his MPs were laughing at someone whose mortgage had gone up £1,000 a month. This week, he's casually made a £1,000 bet in the middle of an interview. Last week, he thought even raising questions about the cost of living was, and I quote, resorting to the politics of envy. And this week, he's finally found the cause that he wants to rally around, the non-dom status. When he finds himself backing tax avoidance over NHS appointments, does he start to understand why his own MPs are saying he simply does not get what Britain needs? Mr Speaker, I'm not going to take any lectures about getting, about, about getting Britain from a man who thought it was right to defend terrorists, Mr Speaker. But what we're doing is building a brighter future for our country. In just the last week, expanding health care in pharmacies. Today, expanding dental care. This week, helping millions with the cost of living. And most importantly, cutting national insurance. All while, all while the Labour Party argue over 28 billion different ways to raise people's taxes. That's the difference between us. We're delivering a plan. They can't even agree on one. Well, it's quite a lot to de- uh, detangle there. Uh, let's start then, first of all, with uh, he's Mr. 25 tax rises. Does that work? We've had, th- we had that before. If, as a vague... It sounds, sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yeah, I don't think I've heard the number 25 before, but it's interesting that he's put a number... Of, you know, we've heard the tax attack before, haven't we? But I can't, I can't remember hearing that 25 sure. number before. It's, it's interesting, though. That is the, that's the nub of everything he said there. Labour means tax increases. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it was the other way around. He was saying that Rishi Sunak was 25 tax Oh, I'm so sorry. That's how, that's how, that's how well that's landed. Uh, <laughs> um, and then uh, trying to tie together the £1,000 mortgage thing last week. Phil, poor old Phil in Iceland having his finances raked over. The £1,000 bet this week. But then he accused uh, Rishi Sunak of rallying round the non-dom status. I think Rishi Sunak just ignored that completely, didn't he? That's what I would have thought as well. I mean, yeah. I'm not sure, as you say, it all kind of tied together with a kind yeah. of beautiful bow at the end there. It's all rather confusing, actually. And uh, this line about defending terrorists, they're Ooh. clearly just going to keep on pushing this Doing budget. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they're un- they're completely unrepentant. I mean, Oliver Dowden, uh, just yesterday, was uh, very stoutly defending that, saying, well, look, you know, it's sort of on a technicality, uh, and you know, I don't think you could look at Keir Starmer and say, I don't think you know, it's plausible to say this guy's a terrorist sympathizer. But the Tories are just going to push it and push it and push it. It's the combination of that and tax rises, I think, that is going to be the overwhelming tone of the. I'm just not sure the terrorist thing's going to kind of cut through, though. I mean, they must have focus grouped it and thought this is a really good idea. But, Mm. you know, if you go down the pub on a Saturday night and start talking to people about what they think about Keir Starmer, that's not the thing that immediately springs to mind. Um, this argument about these uh, costings that uh, the Treasury have done of the Labour plan. Jill Rutter uh, from the Institute for Government. Late of Gordon Brown's Treasury, of course. Yes, and did she work for John Major as well, I think? She did, yeah. So she's just tweeted saying, opposition costings first happened years ago when I was in the Treasury. The then permanent secretary should have said no then and should say no now. It'd be good if Rachel Weaves committed to not letting this happen. 
uh, and then uh, <laughs> someone else, Jonathan Simmons, who I think, again, is a former uh, uh, civil servant. He's, he's described the process uh, of how this happens, where um, someone... Oh, I've lost it. Where has it gone? He basically said that... Uh, so he obviously, as a civil servant, would be asked to do opposition costings. OK, so let's assume this policy will work by uplifting teacher pay by 25%. OK, but that means, no, run me the numbers. OK, it's going to come out very expensive, but I don't think it's realistic because, cheers, got it, smash cut to this week's BMQs. That was basically it. Any attempt to say, yeah, but that's not going to really happen. Uh, and uh, Jill says, part of the deal when the Treasury agreed to do it was that spads would make the assumption. So that's why it says. So it's mad. So Conservative political appointees interpret the Labour Party policy and then ask the Treasury to run the numbers on it, and then they release the numbers and say, oh, it's expensive. It does look a bit kind of back of the fag packet, doesn't it? Putting it mildly. Yeah, and presumably as well, because this is to do with insulating homes to make them, to bring them up to a better level. Presume, with any other policy, you'd have a pot of money, and you'd do as many homes as you could before the money ran out, yeah. rather than doing all of the homes regardless of the cost. I think, I think that is Labour's policy, though. What? Do all the homes regardless mm. of the cost? Well, not regardless of the cost, but that's their ambition to insulate uh, every home. Yeah, 19, 19 million homes yeah, over 10 years. Yeah, but don't forget it would be subject to their fiscal rules. Of course, uh, everything so you is. You keep forgetting that everything caveat. Is. To be fair to Ed Miliband, uh, that is the case. Well, um, who do we think won that? <laughs> I think it was a score draw. I think, by the way, though, I mean, not that, you know, regular disclaimer applies that what's going on on Westminster Twitter is not necessarily a guide to what the public will notice. But every MP and every lobby journalist uh, I can see is having a go at the Prime Minister over his comments on uh, transgender people. Yeah. Um, interesting that the Henry Zethman, later this parish, now the BBC, uh, says, as far as I could tell, Esther Jai was not in the public gallery for Rishi Sunak's comment about Keir Starmer's position on trans people at PMQ. She arrived about 15 minutes in and was there just now when a Labour MP called on Sunak to apologise to her. So <coughs> what Keir Starmer said wasn't quite accurate, uh, but it's, I think the Prime Minister will come under huge pressure to apologise. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it'll be interesting to see whether he does or not, because CCHQ clearly do think this is a wedge issue with which they can attack the Labour Party. And that probably will end up uh, being a bigger story than these made-up numbers they've released. Uh, well, well um, Lara Spear will, will round up the best of the rest, and if it has come up again in some of those later questions, uh, we'll do that next here on Times Radio. Politics without the boring bits. Matt Chorley on Times Radio. Whoa! Voxel are having a special event from the 14th to the 29th of February with an extra £500 saving on petrol cars. Really? What about electric? Wow! An extra £2,000 allowance on electric cars with 4.9% APR representative. Including you, Corsa? Yes. Astra? Yes. Mocha? Yes! Hey, where are you going? Vauxhall retailer. See ya! Personal contract purchase, electric vehicles only. TNC, subject to status and availability, 18 plus, Atlantis Financial Services. At end of agreement, there are three options. Part exchange, pay optional final payment to own vehicle or return vehicle. At McDonald's, we always listen to our fans. So, to the 716 people who've recently told us how much they miss the iconic breakfast wrap, we want you to know we heard you loud and clear. That's why we're finally bringing it back. Grab yours from the 7th of February. Served until 11am, subject to availability. Listen to Jane Garvey and Fee Glover's unique perspective on the day's stories every Monday to Thursday afternoon from 3. Across the UK, on DAB, online and on your smart speaker, this is Times Radio. 
Uh, very good afternoon. She's actually bringing you uh, PMQ's Unpacked. Uh, Caroline Wheeler, please go to the Sunday Times is here, as is Times columnist and Sunday... No, Times columnist if only. and Times <laughs> I was Radio. allowed to straddle both titles. Uh, Times Radio senior political correspondent is uh, Patrick McGuire is here and Lama Spirit Redbox editor is here as well. Now, uh, as we were just discussing, one of the sort of standout moments, that's the right, uh, the right way of describing it, was uh, Rishi Sunak's... Uh, comments on Keir Starmer's uh, policy or changing policy on uh, the definition of a woman. And what was the phrase that he used? It was 99.9% of women don't have a penis. Which is what Keir Starmer had said to you, Caroline, in an interview. Uh, Since then, Labour's changed its policy again, it seems. And so he said he's made 99.9% of a a U-turn. I think that was the, the, the context of all of this. Keir Starmer got very cross about it because he thought uh, um, Brianna Jai's mother, Esther, was in the gallery, which is what he'd already told the House. It seems that she wasn't, but this has now been raised uh, by a Labour MP, uh, Liz Twist, in the comments. Let's, Let's listen to that. Thank you, Mr Speaker. And may I take the opportunity to ask the Prime Minister if he will consider apologising to Brianna Gray's mother for his insensitive comment. But turning to my question... The independent report into Teesworks, released last Monday, throws up more questions than it answers. And it's vital that we now have a National Audit Office investigation. The report was scathing and said there is insufficient transparency to offer evidence of value for money. Shouldn't the government lead by example? And will the Prime Minister finally release details of his conversations surrounding Teesworks, as he was asked to do twice last year. Mr Speaker, I I think the Honourable Lady was talking about the report in Teesworks, as far as I can see, and what that report noted was that the pace and scope of the regeneration had had a wide-reaching positive impact on the local economy, and of course it was an independent external report. It makes it clear that there is no evidence of corruption or illegality, and the government will, of course, respond to the recommendations in the report as soon as possible. So lots of shouting there, uh, calling for apology. Uh, Patrick, you've been following the the, the the sort of social media reaction of this is pretty massive. I mean, it is it is all anybody in Westminster is talking about, um, and it'll be the first thing. Any So listeners may not be aware that immediately after PMQs, the entire press gallery, which is on a very rare occasion full for these things, decamps to the the, gall- the, the uh, room behind the press gallery, behind the Commons Chamber, the Prime Minister's press secretary and official spokesman come up. And the first thing anybody will ask is, is the Prime Minister sorry? What's the Prime Minister going to say to Esther Jai? What would the Prime Minister say to Esther Jai? And everybody will be writing that story up this afternoon. So it's not just that, you know, Twitter is outraged, although lots of MPs have taken to social media to complain. It is very clearly what our colleagues in the press gallery will ask yeah, yeah. about. And the, the Rishi Sunak's sort of refusal to offer that apology... Well, do we even acknowledge Indeed, the question? Yeah, no, yeah, completely. Yeah, yeah. Well, means that it'll just run and run and run. No. Well, I thought it was interesting. He put it down to a procedural. He sort of implied that there was a procedural reason why he couldn't answer that question. He beckoned to yeah. her, didn't he, and said yeah. that I thought the question was about about yeah. works as if he wasn't permitted to respond to that in any way, which, of course, I, I don't think is true. Why he, he doesn't worry too much about answering the questions in <laughs> other exactly. in other contexts. Uh, at the very end of Prime Minister's questions, uh, which is happening as we speak, Rishi Sunak uh, apparently praised Esther Jai, Brianna Jai's mother, for showing the very best of humanity, whether that's enough to... Oh, we'll try Put and, a lid uh, on we'll, this. Can we try and find that? We'll try, Is that the question? Um, if, uh, the other thing in Caroline, bluntly, being completely cynical, there's not a lot of political news around today. No. And 
this row dropping, you know, PMQs rarely produces a standalone story of his own. Uh, the fact that the whole country has been following this this terrible story of the murder of Brianna Jai, the fact that mother was in the gallery, albeit missing the the actual exchange there, she was. It looks like from the footage sitting above Rishi Sunak, because Keir Starmer was sort of pointing at her while he was not answering those questions. Um, this, this could become quite a big bomb for for Rishi Sunak. Yeah, partly because, as you so rightly said, there's not much to compete with uh, yeah. this particular story, and it has been one of the biggest stories uh, that we've seen over the last week uh, breaking uh, across all our sites. So, yeah, it could be a problem. I mean, I think he will stand by the fact that it was probably a scripted answer, mm. and you know, he he has to respond very quickly. As I'm sure you can imagine, he's asked asked questions on a huge variety of subjects. You know, you can probably see if you watch it on television, he has that clip mm. folder in front of him where he kind of reads out almost scripted answers yeah, yeah, about yeah. what he expects to come up. So it will have come kind of out of the blue tin, but you would have thought he could be a bit more agile in that situation. Well, it's interesting. That's twice in a week Rishi Sunak's defence would be, oh, I was pulling the spot, I was pulling the pressure, and I didn't know what to do, essentially. Yeah. What, what was it last week? Well, no, no, P- sorry, Piers, that was his response to oh, Piers Morgan, Morgan thing, yeah, yeah, which yeah, was, yeah, oh, yeah. I was, I was ambushed well, in an interview. Easily ambushed. Well, and, and that is not sort of a convincing defence of the Prime Minister. Also, you've got to give credit to Keir Starmer here, who is often criticised for not being fleet mm. of foot and not being a particularly agile and imaginative commons performer. That was entirely impromptu, his yeah. decision, and it was a snap political judgement, and it has elevated that exchange to the biggest story of the day. If Keir Starmer had not said that, we would not be talking about it now. Yeah, yeah. OK, I think we've got the uh, finally right at the end of PMQs. This is Rishi Sinek. Because those, Mr Speaker, are the values of this Conservative government. And Mr I could just say also to Brianna Gray's mum, who is here, as I've said earlier this week, what happened was an unspeakable and shocking tragedy, Mr Speaker. And as I said earlier this week, in the face of that, for her mother to demonstrate the compassion and empathy that she did last weekend, I thought demonstrated the very best of humanity in the face of seeing the very worst of humanity, and she deserves all our admiration and praise for that. Um, so, just to fill in the background of that, he was actually asked by Vicky Foxcroft, Labour MP, about why there's not a disabilities minister, and he pivoted into that. So, clearly... He knows he's got this one wrong colour. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't think that those two things are kind of naturally interlinked, yeah. are they? So clearly he's realised he's made a boo-boo. I mean, perhaps he can hear some of the noise behind him. He may have been tapped on the shoulder, potentially by one of his um, aides or, or one of the whips, saying, I think you should possibly look at this. But he's clearly got from the kind of reaction that he's had that he needed to kind of say something on the record that was in some way, uh, you know, showing some compassion towards what's happened to her family. I don't know, I've slightly mishit. Did he also say Brianna Gray? I think it's got a name wrong as well, which isn't Did in the in like the mopping it. up apology. In fairness, both of them got the name wrong. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, it's not been a great day for pronunciation, but it's probably worse. Well, we'll see uh, how that unfolds. Um, uh, Lara, in terms of other backbench questions, what else was of particular interest? So I picked this one for Patrick. Um, because it is mentioning a fabled Labour hero, um, and it is from Alan Cairns, um, a Conservative MP for a Welsh constituency, uh, talking about uh, the attack line that you hear a lot about Labour-run NHS in Wales uh, and saying something which I think some Labour figures are going to be very unhappy about, uh, one particular Labour historical historical Labour figure about. So have a listen. Speaker, for 27 years, constituents across the Vale of Glamorgan and across the whole of Wales sadly have to wait longer to see a doctor, longer for an ambulance, longer at A&E and longer for an operation than patients in England. There are 24,000 
785 <coughs> patients in Wales waiting longer than two years for an operation. That number in England is 227. Does my right honourable friend agree that Anirin Bevan will be turning in his grave on the fact that you can't trust Labour with the NHS? Mr Speaker, my honourable friend is absolutely right. Whereas here in England we have a plan when it comes to education, where we're marching up the league tables and we have virtually eliminated those waiting the longest amount of time. But in Labour on Wales, as he said, education rates are falling and waiting lists over 18 months are more than 10 times higher than here in England. It's crystal clear we should stick to our plan for a brighter future and not go back to square one with Labour. Nick Thomas Simmons, the shadow uh, shadow cabinet office minister, and biographer of Nye Bevan will be absolutely furious to hear his name <laughs> taken in vain. Um, I mean, again, that's another line we're likely to hear from the Tories at a general election, though. You know, you can't trust Labour with the NHS. Look at what's happening in Wales. Again, uh, doesn't seem to be working or cutting through, particularly given the many problems with the NHS in England under Conservative management that Keir Starmer mentioned earlier. Um, but it's a glimpse of how Tories, especially Welsh Tories, will seek to point to Labour in devolved government yeah, to yeah. undermine their so programme for yeah, central so. government. Uh, what else caught your eye, uh, Law? Uh, uh, Lara? <laughs> You're worse than the from Prime last Minister. Night. <laughs> um, we're going to Tim Loughton, um, who is talking yes. about this. Um, <laughs> this is a big issue at the moment, especially among Conservative MPs, this question about um, your religious uh, conversion to Christianity uh, being used in asylum claims and how relevant that is. And take a listen to Loughton ask, asking about it. Mr. Mr Speaker, the thoughts of the people of East Worthing and Shoreham are with His Majesty as well. The Archbishop of Canterbury has admitted that since taking office, the attendance at the Church of England has dropped by 15%. And in the 10 years to Covid, the number of baptisms in the Church of England has fallen from 140,000 a year to 87,000. So Christianity in the UK seems to be on the wane, unless apparently you are from a Muslim country in the middle of an asylum claim. And we are now told that one in seven occupants of the Bibi Stockholm have suddenly become practising Christians. Can I ask the Prime Minister, given that the Church of England has now issued secret guidance for clergy supporting asylum applications for these Damascene conversions, who is the Church accountable to and are taxpayers being scammed by the Archbishop? Mr Speaker, when it comes to illegal migrants, we need to have a system whereby if someone comes here illegally, they shouldn't be able to stay. I can tell him that my honourable friend, the Home Secretary, has asked for more information about the extent to which migrants converting to Christianity is playing a role in our asylum system. And more generally, under our Illegal Migration Act, anyone entering the UK illegally will not be granted asylum here. That's why we need to have somewhere to send them and why our Rwanda scheme is so important. The Labour Party have blocked these measures every single step of the way because they don't have a plan and they won't keep Britain safe. Pretty strong stuff, Lara. Uh, the Archbishop is scamming the taxpayer. 
Yeah, I think it's certainly um, somewhat of an escalation uh, on the rhetoric that we've seen of this in uh, recent days and rhetoric that Rishi Sunak, I think, notably slightly resiled from uh, repeating, trying to pivot and focus the attack on Labour instead. But I think it does speak to, you know, Tory MPs I've spoken to uh, in the wake of reading more about this uh, this issue of um, religious conversion in asylum cases. Uh, are Some of them are very, very angry about it and feel like um, it, is being, it is being used uh, opportunistically and that the government should be doing... Uh, should be doing more to stop it. So, and obviously, Caroline, this is in the news because of the uh, reported immigration status of the suspect in the the alkaline attack uh, that happened in South London. Um, I had something was John Hayes on a couple of days ago on the show, and he was telling me how terrible it was, and the asylum system was being hijacked by the liberal establishment and the judiciary and the media and those other things. And I sort of pointed out, well, actually, the, the asylum system has been in the hands of the Conservative government for the last 14 years, and that they, as we've seen, they can apparently rewrite the rules as many times as they want to. Do you think it works, them attacking the church? Or do you think the public will end up thinking, it's your asylum system? Well, I think that's exactly what they're trying to do. It's a real kind of distraction technique, isn't mm. it, to kind of put the blame somewhere else for this. And you're absolutely right. You know, they are in charge of the asylum system. And, you know, it speaks to a theme that we've seen a number of times during even this Prime Minister's question time, mm. that it's all somebody else's fault and trying to effectively um, turn this into a, you know, punch and Judy match, basically. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's all everybody else's fault. It's nothing on us. Um, and trying to use this as... I mean, it just very clearly shows to me that we're heading towards an election quite quickly. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not real politics as it were. And yet, quite slowly. Quite, well, very slowly. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, have you got any more? Any more for us, Lara? Um, do we have time for another? Yes. I think so. We can fit one more in. Um, so this is from the Conservative MP, um, Elliot Coburn, and it is about his personal struggle with uh, mental health. Uh, and I think it's interesting for Rishi Sunak's response uh, on this as well. So take a listen. Thank you, Mr Speaker. February marks emotional health Boost Your Self-Esteem and Children's Mental Health Month. In recent years, something like 6,500 people die in the UK each year due to suicide. And in 2021, I was nearly one of them. <laughs> Luckily, my attempt failed. I was found by family members quickly. I received amazing care at St Helia and Springfield Hospitals, didn't do any permanent damage, and was well looked after by the NHS in the months that followed. And I want to take this chance to say thank you to everyone who saved me and sorry to my family and loved ones who I put through such an awful ordeal. In that moment, I felt alone and scared and like there was no way out and that the world would be better off without me in it. But I don't recognise that man anymore. I know that nothing is ever really worth that. Help really is out there. I'm pretty awesome. <laughs> Does the Prime Minister agree that one death by suicide is one too many? And will he send a message from the dispatch box today that whatever you're going through, you are not alone, that help is out there, and better days lie ahead? Well, Mr Speaker, I know the whole House will join me in commending my honourable friend for his bravery in sharing his story. And I can absolutely assure him that we take this issue incredibly seriously. The new suicide prevention strategy ensures that we will have the actions in place to reduce suicide over the next years because we absolutely recognise the impact that it has on people, their families, and we should do everything we can to prevent that from happening. Well, there's a 
Nice, thoughtful question. I mean, pretty extraordinary. I don't think Elliot Coburn's spoken about that before. He was elected as uh, Conservative MP in Carl Scholz and Wallace in 2019, and he was saying that was in 2021, so it was while he was, while he was an MP. Yeah, it's a very striking omission for a, an MP, particularly a Conservative MP, to make. You know, imagine 25 years ago an MP getting up in the Commons chamber and admitting so openly that they had made an attempt on their own life. It's... Well, they, couldn't, they couldn't have done it, actually. I, I mean, I remember the fact that they, we had to actually change the law because mm. actually mental illness used to be an impediment to standing as an MP. And they changed that not that long ago. So actually, it just would, it would not, have, not happened. have happened. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's good that he... Well, you know, and he was making the point that it is uh, um, Emotional Health Booster Self-Esteem in Children's Mental Health Month. So that all those things are happening in February. So that's why he wanted to speak out. And, uh, and uh, Rishi Sunak responding um, with a similar tone, probably a better tone than he, he has in other parts of PMQs today. Well, that's all we've got time for, I think. But Lama, thank you for that. Lama Spoon, Patrick McGuire, Caroline Wheeler. Uh, no doubt the row over uh, Rishi Sunak mocking uh, Rish, uh, Keir Starmer's stance on uh, transgender will uh, rumble on for the rest of the day. Um, he's been accused of, uh, you know, because... The, the mother of murdered tra transgender teenager, Brianna Jai, was uh, in Parliament today, arrived during, during the course of PMQs. Uh, lots of MPs crying out shame at uh, Rishi Sunak uh, for mocking Kiss. I was changing position on uh, transgender rights. And then later on, uh, Rishi Sunak uh, paying tribute to uh, uh, Brianna Jai's family. Um, presumably in the hope of, uh, of removing some of the sting from that um, that criticism. Right, that's quite enough for this week on PMQ's Unpacked. They won't be here next week because uh, MPs are off for a mini break, as am I. Patrick McGuire will be looking after you uh, next week. PMQ's Unpacked returns in a fortnight. But for now, for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.